Philippians, and so I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 2, a very powerful chapter in the New Testament. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 2, whether on the page or now most of you now have it on your phone. So I'll be in Philippians 2 in just a little bit. Just by way of reminder, if you missed last week, it's online. You could go to our website, livingstones.cc, and listen to the podcast. And as you're listening to it, what you'll get is uh, we gave a lot of background information about the Apostle Paul himself and his life experiences. And then we turned to the church in Philippi and how it got started from the stories of the book of Acts and some of the background information about the city itself, which I'm hoping as we read this letter together, some of that will kind of enter into the conversation, it'll be kind of like light bulb moments of, oh, that makes a whole lot more sense than why Paul would say this, given that background information. But then we just dove into chapter one of Philippians, and in chapter one, we saw Paul's normal greeting about himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that he's addressing it to the church and to the Christians in Philippi, and then he goes on to give to them what his prayer is and what he's thankful for. And so he will ultimately say that my greatest prayer for you and my greatest hope for you is that you will be so filled up with love that when that happens, you will know the very best way for life. And he goes on to be more eloquent in regards to you'll be able to discern what is best. You'll be pure and blameless and you will bear fruit consistent with righteousness. But the key to all of that is having a life that is just full and filled up continually with the love of Christ. But then Paul has the challenge before him of trying to explain to the church in Philippi why they ought not to be discouraged, even though it looks like Paul is losing. Because what Paul has to do is he has to undermine the values of the world. And we all have them, and we're all tempted to be pulled towards them. That when I say say the word success, something comes to mind. It's usually in regards to life station and economy and money and possessions and fame and you name it. That's typically how we think about fame in terms of our success, like who's winning in life. And here you got the Apostle Paul. He's in a prison probably in the city of Rome. And especially in the ancient world, and some of that's reflected even today, but if you go to prison, like if you're in prison, you immediately lose your social status, and you were looked down upon by society at large. And this is a real problem for the church in Philippi because their leader and founder is in prison. He is now a prisoner. And on top of that, you've got other preachers who are going around, and they're preaching out of selfish motives and ambitions that are false, and they're even saying very negative things about Paul, and it's creating a lot of anxiety. And Paul has to write and say, now, let me tell you why it looks like I'm losing, but really through the eyes of the kingdom, I'm winning. And so he talks about, because I'm in prison, everybody knows about Jesus. They know that's why I'm here. In fact, my imprisonment has allowed my fellow brothers and sisters to proclaim the good news of Jesus with greater boldness than they probably ever would have had it not been for my experience. And because of that, we're winning. Like, I know it might look by the world standards that we're losing, but we're not. And yes, it is true. There are some very uh, false-motive preachers running around and even saying bad things about me. But you know what's happening in the end? Jesus is getting preached. And thus... No matter what, we're winning. And so he's trying to turn upside down the typical values that we'd have. And this is very important to us as a church that we recognize our gospel is for the losers, for the outcasts, and for those who don't look like they're winning based on the definition of winning in our society because we recognize we're following after Jesus who turned all that upside down. And now we must look at all of our life circumstances through the lens of the kingdom of God. And through that lens, even a prison cell might lead you to rejoice is what Paul's point is in the whole first chapter. In fact, I'll say it again, I rejoice of all these circumstances 
They don't look good, I know, in the eyes of the world, but I recognize that God is at work in them and doing a great thing. And we were challenged then to maybe look at our, our external circumstances of life that might not look so great at the moment and view it from the eyes of the kingdom of God to say, you know what, actually God is at work in this and he's going to be at work in that and this is going to happen now that would have never happened had I not experienced this in my life. And so that's what Paul challenges us to. But now as we move on to the second chapter, let me begin by just... Um, let me give a shout out to America for just a moment, if I might, and kind of also critique us. So just follow along with me if you wouldn't mind. But we recognize America was founded on certain values and principles, like kind of core values, like kind of as a nation that we were kind of founded on as a nation, and even things that I really like. But what you'll be able to see is for the next 200 years and plus, those values will shape our society and our culture. For example... We have, as a nation, always valued and had a high value on the concept of independence, right? Independence is a huge deal to us, and by that, it's the idea that I'm not dependent on anyone. And more than that, even the idea that we are free, and out of that, we like to kind of hang on to this idea that no one can tell me what to do, right? And you know that attitude, that kind of spirit that comes with that? You're not the boss of me, right? We got that down. Don't tell me what to do. You ain't my mama. And so those are the things that kind of, right? That's a part of our DNA and our makeup. We are fiercely independent. At least we want to think of ourselves as independent. So you have stories like John Hancock. You know the story of John Hancock as he's signing the Declaration of Independence. He wants to sign his name so large so that when King George sees it, he'll be able to read his name without his spectacles on. And it's just sort of a way of just kind of thumbing, I don't need you. You're not the boss of me. And, and what happens is it just seeps into our culture in so many ways. And it struck me, if you just kind of go through a list of songs that are written, how this value of independence, like you can't tell me what to do, is so prevalent. So you got Billy Joel singing songs, right? I don't care what you say anymore, this is. Go ahead with your own life. Right? That's that, that's that fierce independence trick, right? Or, or you got Twisted Sister coming along and singing, We're not going to take it. No, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it. See, we all know, right? That's our songs. That's our anthems. Like, don't tell me what to do. We are fiercely independent. And we can sing 80 songs together all morning, and I'd be like, this is the best church service we've ever had together. But, but so stemming, like, so it's the extension of those values of independence. Uh, because of that, we value things and the ideas of, like, personal freedoms and individual rights. And, and like a good American, uh, I'm, I'm totally for those. Like, I'm totally for individual rights and, and personal freedoms. I don't want the government involved in places that the government has no business being involved in, right? They're just things of my, it was not, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just, it's none of your business, right? Don't we kind of have that idea of, like, it is not the government's place or position to be here. We have rights of privacy. We have rights of speech and worship and movement, and I'm for all of those rights. And, and we all understand that, but you know there's a but coming here, right? Can you feel the but coming? There's a but coming here, and it's some of this, but... When your society and culture revolves around the values of independence and individual rights, there are some downsides to that. Like there are some extended kind of uh, opposite side of the coin negatives that come with that. This would be kind of the weaknesses, so to speak, of our culture in that. And in it is excessive greed. Like when the individual is exalted above all other things, the downside is we have the temptation then to be excessively greedy that everything revolves around what I want as the individual. Another downside is 
a pervasive spirit of entitlement. You know what I mean by that? A pervasive spirit of entitlement. The idea that I am owed this, and I deserve this, and I should have this because it's all about me. In fact, I don't know if you know the story that was in the news a couple years ago about Rachel Canning. This is her picture up here. Um, her parents just kind of had some rules for her in regards to chores and curfew, and she didn't want to live by that, so she took off. But when she left, she sued her parents to get them to pay for her college education and her, and so like this whole list of demands that she was suing her parents for. And if you kind of go and read the whole uh, background story, it's just kind of like a, you can't help but walk away and go, whew, what a spirit of entitlement that kind of comes along those things. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, we could take like a five-minute break here and all you have to do is go talk to a teacher in the classroom and they could tell you all about that spirit of entitlement and, um, and not just with kids, like parents too. And so w- what happens is, there's sort of this radical centering on the self. This idea that you have to look for number one. Like, I'm just going to live my life to make me happy. And well, where do we get that from? Well, our commitment to pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, gone to extremes. I'm just going to do me. And the expressions of this radical self-centeredness are all over our culture and society, and they manifest in all sorts of ways, and sometimes tragically as we ignore our neighbor who's in trouble because, well, that's just not my problem. And how many news stories have we heard of somebody like, like was brutally attacked and onlookers did nothing about it, just walked right by because they just want to get involved, didn't, didn't want to get messy, didn't want to get troubled and those sorts of things. They didn't, well, you can abandon your children because you want to go party for the night because you deserve a life too, or you exit a marriage because he wasn't meeting my needs. And what happens is it becomes so pervasively surrounding ourselves, and because we drink that water or Kool-Aid, we think it's just normal. But what I would suggest is actually there are other cultures on the face of the earth, and actually the majority of cultures on the face of the earth, especially in Eastern cultures, that think in exactly opposite terms. So we just think, well, that's the way life is. And I'm saying, actually, the majority of the world uh, thinks in opposite terms. You never elevate the individual over the whole. And any individual who would move to act in a way that hurts the larger community would be frowned upon. You don't look at your elders and say to them, you can't tell me what to do, ever. You don't see your neighbor without food and conclude to yourself, well, that's just not my problem. Those thoughts and behaviors would be to your shame, and they're not exalted. Interdependence is more of a virtue than independence. And individual rights exist only as, by extension, they benefit the whole. And just to show you how crazy we become in our thinking, I, I want to show you, now listen, before it gets up on the screen here, um, I'm going to enter into the world of politics, but I'm not taking a political stance. So you're about to see a picture of Hillary Clinton, and I don't know what sort of visceral reaction that's going to create in you. Like, so you're like, I hate this church, and then the others are like, woo, yeah, I mean, just, so hang on to that. It's not about Hillary Clinton, but I just want you to see a meme that was on Facebook I saw the other day that I think will illustrate how sometimes we don't even see what we think and where we're at. So go ahead and put this up here. It's a picture of Hitler right next to Hillary Clinton. Now, anytime I see these comparisons, I immediately go, come on. Like, these are absurd to the extreme. First of all, when people do this, especially when Christians do it, I think this is kind of like a form of libel, and like Jesus really does talk about these things specifically, but it's also a false argument. It's an emotive appeal and not a rational one. So you see a picture of Hitler, and we all think Hitler's evil, right? 
And so you put somebody else's face next to him and compare them. You're like, oh, well, by extension, Hillary Clinton must be uh, evil as well. And what I would say is, listen, this is an emotional pill, not a rational one, but look what the sentiment is under attack here. And so you have Hitler, uh, a quote from Hitler, society's needs come before the individual's needs. Like, like, now, just by the way, Hitler was like an evil dude, but you do re- realize that everything that came out of Hitler's mouth was not evil, right? Like, even a broken clock could be right twice a day. Like, Hitler did not, everything is, but listen to the sentiment of what he just said. And then compare that to what apparently is a quote from Hillary Clinton, we must stop thinking of the individual and start thinking about what is best for society. And somebody read those two quotes and thought, oh, can you believe they would say that? And they put their picture together and threw it up as a meme, right? And then as good Americans, we were like, oh, can you believe that? And what I want to back up for just a moment and say, no, listen to what's being said. Because what I'm saying is, you could read Philippians chapter 2 and you could put Hitler and the Apostle Paul's face next to each other. Or you could put Hitler and Jesus' face right next to each other this sentiment that somehow the whole world revolves around our individual rights and me is challenged for us as disciples of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. And so just by virtue of being an American and growing up in the society and culture, this chapter is a little difficult for us. It doesn't come probably nearly as natural to us as it might to other cultures who are drinking different water and different Kool-Aid, but there seems to be a little selfish problem going on in the church of Philippi as well as the church, uh, in the, the culture of Philippi as well as the church in Philippi. And the result is some conflict. Like, we don't know exactly what the issue is, but we know in chapter 4, Paul will just name two women in the church and say, I need the church as a whole to help uh, syndicate in Judea figure out how to get along with one another. And Paul rarely names names, but he will just call out two women in the church who seem to be fighting. And I don't know what it's about. It doesn't really say. My guess is maybe they both were on the worship team and one of them got a solo and the other one didn't. And I'm just kidding. That can't happen in church. <laughs> or, or maybe they both made a bacon casserole for the church potluck because you could do that because Jesus allows us to eat bacon, praise Jesus. And maybe Yudia's was better and everyone ate it like in minutes. And Sintike had leftovers that she took home, and she's been bitter ever since. <laughs> Just kidding, that can't happen in church. <laughs> so you know how that works, right? When two people are in a fight, right? But here's the question. How often is it that when two people are fighting with another, it just stays between those two people? Like, how often does that happen? Like, even in spite of Jesus telling us in Matthew 18, listen, if you've got a problem with somebody, you go to them and you take care of it. But what happens is there's a psychological thing that rises up in us whenever we're in tension with, like, so if you have person A and person B and they're in a conflict with one another, there's great tension in that. And the way to relieve that tension psychologically is to do what? Does anyone know? Bring in person C. And so what happens is person B calls their best friend, person C, and says, hey, I just need you to pray about person A because this is what they did to me and this is what happened and this is the the whole story. And you know what person C then says? I can't believe they would do that to you. And so then they're kind of on person B's side. And you know what person A does? They call their best friend person D and says, hey, I just, I, I, can we go have coffee together? I just, there's a situation going on in my life. I just need some wisdom and discernment. And so you get together for coffee and did you hear what person B did to me? And you tell the whole story and you know what person D says? I can't believe they would treat you like that. Who do they think they are? And the next thing you know, person E and F and G and this is, this is how church is split, right? This is how this looks. It's called triangulization, even though, you know, now we got a whole Facebook group message going on, and did she said, oh, she really did say, I mean, that's what, I mean, not in churches necessarily, but, and if you boil it all down, 
One of them just probably felt disrespected and they felt like they deserved better. And when those thoughts and emotions start to arise in us, conflict and bitterness are sure to follow. So who knows how many people are involved, but Paul has to put his finger on the very heart of the issue and he begins to address it in in, in verse 1. He says this, Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, what that means is Paul is going back to what he just said. Because of what I just said here, therefore, boom, live like this. And at the end of chapter 1, if you look at it, what he was specifically noting is just like Paul himself, you all had the honor of not only believing in Jesus, but also suffering for the name of Jesus. What he's saying is there is real opposition that we're facing. Like on the outside of our, our church, we are undergoing real opposition. So why in the world would we make it harder on ourselves by being against ourselves with eternal conflict? And sometimes that happens. It's like, listen, we've got enough to deal with from outside of us. We don't want to shoot our own wounded. Like who wants, like you don't want, we don't want to eat our own, so to speak. And so that's what Paul's saying is, listen, we all share in the same suffering of Christ. Just like me, you are going through the same thing. Why in the world would we make this harder on ourselves? Be like-minded. And Jesus himself told us that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so Paul will say in chapter 1, verse 27, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And these circumstances are bringing for Paul joy. I will rejoice in it, he says. But now here Paul picks back up his joy and he says, you know what would make my joy complete? If you were like-minded, which is an expression of unity, not like that we're all Stepford Wives. I don't think that's... Right? You ever see the show Stepford Wives? I don't think he intends that necessarily. But that we have the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Because that's the problem. That, that's been broken. So just think about what you've received from Jesus. And if you've been, had any encouragement in that, any comfort in his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness, any compassion, and come on, really? Like, if we've received this from Jesus... You're going to fight because you now feel disrespected? And so he'll go on in verse 3, he says this, and we heard this during worship. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Now, this is a great verse to memorize. And then Paul very clearly instructs them on how this life in Christ is supposed to be lived. Like this where he follows. So we don't do anything out of selfish ambition. And what Paul's asking us to do is kind of do a motive, like a, a motive check. Like, okay, you've got to check your motives here. Why are you saying this? Why are you doing this? Why are you treating this person like this? Is it to advance yourself? And honestly, like, is this a humble brag? Like, you know what a humble brag is? And you try to appear all humble but really disguised in it is you're, you're bragging about something. Here's Helen LaTroy. Her humble brag, oh, so frustrating, right? When a war literally breaks out over you, ugh, men, right? So it's like, and then everybody's comments, you're gorgeous, you're, you're the best, like, you should expect it. And Paul says we should humbly value others above yourself and don't let your own interest be the first thing that filters in your mind in regards to behavior. Think about the other interest of others first. Now, I'm telling you, if everyone in this room really lived this out, like, really? it would revolutionize everything. 
And imagine all the context that would immediately change if we actually lived by this instruction. Your workplace would be radically changed if rather than advancing ourselves, you walked in and valued the advancement of your coworker above yourself and try to figure out how you might promote them and advance them in words, in attitudes, and behaviors. I mean, could you imagine what that would even look like in a workplace? Like some of you work in such highly competitive places, like it's just continually who's going to get credit for this and whose idea was it to begin with. Like, could you imagine if you walked in and were completely opposite and spent your time trying to figure out how do I promote and advance those who are around me, that they're blessed, that, that they get ahead. And imagine in your marriages what happens immediately if we actually live this out. Like how many resentments are immediately gone with this mindset that you're sitting there and you're just stewing because you're convinced your husband doesn't appreciate you. I work all day too. I'm long. I come home. I got kids. You've got a whole list of grievances that you've been holding against your spouse. So we might not actively and perpetually see about them because we can't live in that, but every time we feel neglected or disrespected or in the midst of conflict, all that list just comes flying back into our mind and we stew over how we aren't getting what we deserve and it crushes life and joy out of marriages. And these two verses, it's, it's the remedy. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying if we can learn this as our habitual, most instinctive response, it changes everything. Could you imagine if your kids lived out these two verses? Like, can you imagine? Right? Some of your kids don't like each other. They don't get along, right? Some of your parents are mourning the loss that your siblings are always fighting or your, your children are always fighting. They don't get along with their brother or their sister, and, right? So one of them is time to do the dishes. And what happens? Sure, Mom, I'd love to do the dishes. Like, no, no that never happened. Like, not in my household, right? What happens in my household? Like, I did the dishes last night, it's, right? So-and-so's turn to do dishes. Like, this big fight kind of breaks out, the brouhaha. But, man, if you could teach your kids to live this out, then what happens is, like, if your daughter Ashley, it's her time to do the dishes, but she's got a ton of homework, and her sister Missy knows that. What if Missy stepped forward and say, I'll, I'll do the dishes tonight because I know you've got a lot of homework to do, right? It's a whole new attitude shift. and it cha- I mean, it revolutionizes everything. So, kids, listen, shock your parents. Like, shock them. Just like, I'll take care of that tonight. It's putting the needs of others above ourselves. But Paul takes us a little further. This isn't just like a self-help issue. This isn't just a, wouldn't life be better if, if we kind of position? This is, an, this is an issue of discipleship. This is the core of their new identity as followers of Jesus, and Paul will anchor his appeal back into the person of Jesus. It isn't just, I wish you guys would get along because our potlucks would be better, or it isn't just, doesn't it just feel better not to carry around those negative emotions and thoughts? But even more important, that isn't you anymore. You aren't a man of war anymore. You're a man of peace, following the prince of peace. And so he reminds them you should have this same attitude. He says this in verse 5 of the chapter, in your relationships with one another. See how he even gives it context? In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love that language in the NIV. See how that is? Jesus is God. He says, I'm not going to take advantage of that privileged position. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. They don't go on and say, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this section here in verse 5, most scholars believe that this part of the letter is probably actually the earliest Christian hymn. 
or at least one of the earliest Christian hymns. In fact, if you, so you can't see it well here on the screen, but if you're reading from your Bible, you'll note that the font, uh, the margins change, and it goes from kind of a, a full, uh, wide font script on your page to one that looks like poetry. Uh, that's because it's probably indicating this is actually a hymn that my guess is even the church in Philippi would sing together. And what Paul does is he writes to say, let me remind you of what you sing about that you should have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who though, even though he was God, did not consider that something to be taken advantage of. And he's trying to remind... And so it's a song that they all knew. They probably learned it at church camp or brought it back from a Hillsong Philippi conference that they attended. And so um, <laughs> Paul anchors his appeal to them to overcome their conflicts with the very example of Jesus. And he starts by just reminding them, you know, Jesus had privileged status. Like he was God. But he didn't use it. In fact, whatever privilege he had, he used it and leveraged it and spent it for the sake of other people. And that's why when we see him, what we see by way of nature is a servant. He's God who's a servant. And this has huge cultural and political and social ramifications. See, the problem with most privileges is that when you have it, you don't know you have it. Like if I were to say you might have any privilege in your life, we'd tend to go, I don't feel very privileged. (laughs) And all sorts of reasons come to our mind. But the truth of the matter is most of us walk around with some level of privilege. Maybe it's because of your ethnicity. It might be because of your gender. It might be because of your position at work. Just by way of being an American, listen to me, at least compared to the rest of the world, we have some privilege. And what I would say is, before we get to that, I don't feel very privileged, I would just say, listen, you might not have a lot, but whatever you do have, you should leverage it like Jesus. Use whatever privilege you might have in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the community to be a servant like Jesus. There are some things in life that I've never had to deal with or struggle with by virtue of that. But my question is, what will I do with that? Will I use it to my own advantage, to advance myself, or will I use it to lift up those who were not born maybe in the same state that I have been given? And what it calls us to here is to give up your position of being right for the sake of others. That being right all the time, which is a real struggle for me because I typically am and it's a cross to bear, um, in the end it's really about privilege and position. Jesus has every right to press his case, to demand other treatment, to remind Pilate and the chief priest exactly who he is. He has position in such a way that he could call down 10,000 angels if he wants to, if not hellfire itself. Yet what Paul is trying to say is, you know, he didn't do any of that. He just humbled himself and became obedient to death, and not just any death, the most embarrassing kind of death, a cross. A cross that was so brutal and horrific and so shameful that no Roman citizen, even if convicted of a capital offense, would be crucified. Crucifixion was intended to be a place of humiliation and intimidation, and Jesus heads right into it for us. And Paul writes and says, you should be just like that. So I don't know the details of what you're fighting about, but given this, it's time to be at peace with one another. And I don't know the real, all the source of this conflict and why there's a lot of this infighting, but if we'll just hold up Jesus for just a moment, you'll see it will take care of all of that. And he has to remind them that it's okay. You you can't stay ticked off at each other because you didn't get your way, or she said this, or he said that, or... You didn't get to sing the solo or their casserole was better. You didn't get invited to lunch. So he goes on in verse 12. Let me wrap up here. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Verse 14 is key here. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even as I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service, and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And so um, I think we discussed this during the Death of Joy series we did in April. Like, there are a lot of verses that it'd be nice to understand better, but if I could just live out verse 14, like just live that out, know how to do all things without grumbling or complaining, that would change everything in my life. And Paul points out that given the way that like non-Christians live in our society and culture, and he's talking about Philippi at the moment, if you actually look like Jesus and made yourself a servant to everyone like him, you, you'd like shine like the stars. Like you would totally stick out, but like in a very positive way, an illuminating way. So while everyone else is living by the philosophy of, well, you just need to look out for number one, or you just need to do what makes you happy, you'll actually be living a life that is like, an offering and a sacrifice to God. And then Paul continues with that theme of, and, I'm gonna, and I'll be glad and rejoice with you in it. And you should be glad and rejoice with me. And then he wraps it all up in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Now he's got to commend Timothy because they don't really know Timothy. But Timothy has been a very faithful son uh, to Paul in the faith and he's about to send them to the church in Philippi. And when he gets there, he wants to make sure he gets a good reception from the church. And so this is an ancient practice. You can't just call up on the phone. Hey, so-and-so, I'm about to send Timothy to you. This is what he looks like. This is who he is. It would be Timothy would have Paul's letter in hand, and when he hands it over, within the letter would be Timothy's commendation. And that's what you see taking place here. That I also may be cheered then when I receive news about you. So I'm saying Timothy to get a report. He's going to come back to me, and when he comes back, I bet he says great things about all of you, and that will encourage me, especially that I'm here in prison. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not that of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I, as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But, and this is another thing, um, the church in Philippi sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to go take care of Paul when he was in prison. <laughs> And then he got deathly sick. Like, it was bad. Like, Epaphroditus was about to die, so everybody's nervous. Oh, no, how's Epaphroditus doing? So Paul will also write here to let them know. Let me share with you about Epaphroditus. He says, I think it's nice to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, who you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because he knows that you heard he was sick. And he really was. Like, he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on, not on him only, but also on me, because if he would have died, I mean, just the crushing discouragement that would be. So he spared me sorrow, sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that you may see him again. You may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him, the Lord, with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. So here it is. You can't read chapter 2 without it calling us to have an attitude check. And taking your whole life at once is probably overwhelming, and we would just end up dismissing Paul's teaching as right and good, even if it might be applicable. So let me kind of break it down a little bit smaller for us. And let me just ask you this question. Who in your family are you not speaking to right now? 
like just your family? Like who are you not talking to? What brother or sister or cousin or parent hurt your feelings? And maybe they, like, I'm not even justifying with it. Like, no, they really did do something wrong. Like, they really did hurt your feelings, and now you won't speak to them anymore. Or who is it in your family that when you hear good things happen to them, like they got the new car, built a new house, got a promotion, a job, a vacation, that inside you can kind of, you kind of seethe a little bit, you know what I'm talking about? Like that kind of, kind of burn a little bit with jealousy and envy there. Like, whoever that is that comes to your mind, let me just say, it might be time to call and apologize if that's what you need to do, or at least find a way to serve them and to begin to treat them with the exact same mindset as Jesus and how he'd treat them. And I know it's easy to throw that out there. I mean, I know it's a whole, that's a, I'm asking you for a big thing. But this is what Paul is saying. You have to have the exact same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or let me just kind of get into this room for just a moment. Like, who in this church are you avoiding? Like, you won't shake their hand. You come to the 11 o'clock service because you know they come to the 9.30 service. It, it might be time to call and schedule a time to get together to make up. Time to stop treating each other with contempt. Time to treat each other with the exact same mindset that Jesus would have and treat them with. Or at work, same thing. This passage is calling us, and this is a hard thing, but it's the cross. He's calling us to lay down our rights, our individual privileges, our what we are owed. It is telling us to not be concerned with, well, I've been disrespected or getting our way of being right. And it's telling us to see others as Jesus sees them, including the really annoying ones, and treating them like Jesus would treat them. And there should be for us immediate application to this. To You know, we walk out of the room, get into our car with the family, and you get into place... Ask yourself, what radio station would they like to listen to? Put that on. That's what Jesus would do. Unless it's country. He would not put... I'm just kidding. I'm I'm kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Like instead of going out to eat like where you want to go, go out to eat where you know other people in the car, they want to go. That's the exact same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or opening up the door or giving... Listen, kids, giving your sister some space in the back seat and not, not whining about it maybe crossing your line. Like when you walk into the restaurant, this passage should have immediate application in regards to how you are going to treat your server and tip them. How you're going to conduct yourself towards other patrons of that establishment that you might have the right to kick the booth, you know, that wooden part of the booth that you're sitting in, but because you know it's going to irritate the people behind you, you're going to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, and you're not going to do that because we're trying to be like Jesus. And the exact same mindset as Jesus. It's a real practical application so let this be a motive check for us and an attitude check and even a behavior thing to go, you know what, there's a couple things I have to realign and may God give you grace in it. Let's stand together. We're going to pray. Next week we'll dive